Good morning, everybody. Um, if I have not met you yet, my name is uh, Pastor Andrew Walker. Hey. Uh, so January 9th is a pretty special day in the Walker house. Um, August, our middle child was born on, sorry, did I say February? I said January. Okay, good. So January 9th is a special day. August, our middle child was born on January 9th. Uh, before that, Audrey and I started dating in college on January 9th. Um, and between those two dates, uh, I asked Audrey to marry me on January 9th. Um, and here's, here's how that went down. So I worked for campus security at Concordia University. I knew people in campus security. This was when it was downtown, central Austin, right on the highway. Um, so there was a, you know, science hall, um, right there by the highway. And I asked who, whoever was working security that night if we could have access to that building. Um, and, and the, he would lock it afterwards. So Audrey and I were scheduled to go on a date, but instead of, you know, taking her out somewhere, we walked over to the science hall. We went in there. I was wearing a, a suit and tie, and she was dressed up all nice. So we went in there, and I had a table set. It was nice. There was like a tablecloth. Um, I had like a uh, uh, an iPod dock playing. Um, I don't remember. I think it was Jamie Cullum or or Frank Sinatra or something like that. And and in the cafeteria at that time, the the chef used to work on a cruise ship, so he could do like all the fancy stuff, like carve shapes into fruits and make the watermelon flowers and, and strawberry flowers. There were a lot of flowers involved, uh, melons of various kinds. Uh, so we had, you know, one of those set in the middle of the table, flowers, a plate, and he like made this really nice dinner for us. Um, I told him what I wanted to do, and he did all of it for free. So it was really nice because um, we were in college. So we go there, we eat. Um, we uh, danced, and then we we went out to the South Lamar Bridge. That was kind of a regular spot where we would just go walking and stuff like that. Um, and I and I took our dessert. We were going to eat our dessert out there. It was a swan-shaped foil uh, structure, uh, you know, little statuette thing. And and he he had wrapped our dessert in there. So after a while, we're sitting out there, we're talking, and, um, and, and, and I just asked if, you know, if she was ready for dessert yet, and she said, yes, yeah, so I unwrapped it, and it was the ring. I totally threw her, right? So, uh, anyway, so I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was an awesome night. We, you know, called parents and made a big deal out of it. But I, I made a big deal out of that night because asking that question is a, is a big deal. You know, people make a big deal out of proposals. And they were even bigger back in ancient times. They were back in, they were bigger back in ancient Israel. See, we, we tend to make a much bigger deal out of the proposal, out of the wedding. You know, so much planning goes into these things. So much money goes into these things. Almost to the neglect of actually preparing for the marriage itself, right? We make a big deal out of the asks. But marriage is the, is the biggest it's the biggest thing. It's it's to launch into this incredible journey together. Now, if you 
Remember, in Ruth's day, um, marriage was an even bigger deal still because a woman at that time, her net worth was determined by whether or not she was married and by how many sons she had, right? Her Her worth was determined by the men in her life. And without, then her quality of life would be really low. She would be uh, it would be a lot harder for her to survive. So when um, Naomi hatches this plan for Ruth, because she knows that uh, marriage, the relationship long-term, is a much bigger deal for, for Ruth, right? Because she still has a much longer life ahead of her. And this is not like our um, our matters of compatibility, Right when we ask someone to marry, uh, when we ask someone to marry us, or we determine marriage, a lot of it is based on compatibility. Will we, will we have matching personalities? Will we get together well? Will we have fun together? Not just that. Will that fun last? Can we make it last for a while? See, never when I asked Audrey to marry me, would I have guessed like her survival is dependent on me. Right, I, and that never crossed my mind because she's independent. She can she can work. She's much more competent at all of those things than I am. So I had no doubt that like she could take care of herself. It never crossed my mind. But at that time, marriage for a woman meant rest, and not like not like exhaustion, like rest from exhaustion, but like peace and security and knowing I'm I'm covered. I'm taken care of. Okay, so. This is rest emotionally, this is rest provisionally, and that's what Naomi wants for Ruth. So she develops this plan, right? She knows that Boaz has been nice to her, he's befriended her, he's provided for uh, for Naomi and Ruth both. They're both widows, they need that provision, and Boaz has been extremely generous in that regard. So Naomi hatches this plan um, to say, you know, he's he's a kinsman redeemer for our family. In other words, it is according to God's law and our tradition that he would marry you, right? Now, not everybody followed through with this. She wants him to follow through with this. So she develops a plan that would get Ruth in the right place at the right time so that he would be able to propose to her. Ruth gets decked up to the nines, she bathes, she wears perfume, she dresses nice, and this is a way to kind of signal to Boaz, I'm not mourning the death of my husband anymore, I'm eligible. She goes to the threshing floor where Boaz and his workers had been all day threshing wheat. They had they had worked hard, so they stayed there because they work late, they work early, so they're staying overnight there. Um, they eat, they drink, they're merry, and they fall asleep. Ruth gets there, and in the middle of the night, she she pulls the blanket up over his feet, okay? Now, lots of people have questioned whether or not this is like a euphemism or something like that. It's not, okay? She really pulls the blanket up over his feet and she lays down so that when his feet get cold in the middle of the night, he wakes up. And when he wakes up, he notices, oh, there's somebody at my feet, right? So this was a, a symbol at that time to... Um, Ruth was not proposing to Boaz, but she was letting him know, if you propose to me, I'm ready. Okay? I Will you cover me 
with your wings. So when he put his blanket over both of them, it was a signal that she would be under his care. Okay, so that's what he does, and and he uh, he takes that burden from her immediately. Okay, so no longer is she trying to figure out how am I going to survive? What am I going to do? I've got to take care of Naomi. I've got to take care of myself. What are we going to do? That has been lifted off of her because right away, as soon as it's time to wake up, he goes directly into the city. The text says she, but the original text is he. She leaves as soon as he can, as soon as light breaks, and he goes into the city and he starts making preparations to take care of business. Right? He's saying, this is now on me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of uh, what, what's happening here. Now, here's the other thing to note. By doing this in the middle of the night, it kind of looks sketchy at, at first. Like, why is she going in the middle of the night to do this? Um, it's to take the pressure off of him. If he says no, nobody has to know. If he denies her, nobody has to know. She's, she's asking him a question without any strings attached, without any pressure attached. If he sends her off, then his reputation is not damaged and her reputation is not damaged for being there in the middle of the night. Okay? So, he, she is putting, uh, she's making herself vulnerable in this situation, recognizing that his reputation is vulnerable in this situation. Alright? Now, he tells her right away, he says, I, I got you. But, there's a little bit of a hiccup. I'm not the first one in line to take care of y'all in this, in this family. I'm not the first kinsman redeemer in the line. There's another guy. But, I will take care of this. So in other words, either way, if he doesn't take care of you, if he's not willing to do this, I am. Either way, you're covered. Your burden is now my burden. Your survival is now in my hands. So, we, we've said, um, that this book that we've been walking through for the past couple of weeks, Ruth, is like a pocket gospel. Initially, it just looks like this short, simple story, but we see Jesus in here everywhere. We see Jesus in these pages, in these words. Boaz gives Ruth hope in a new story. So what we've been echoing throughout the series is Jesus turns our the end into part of his glorious unfolding story where we would be dead in our sins he makes us alive in Christ he makes us he gives us his resurrected life he gives us a new unfolding story and he bears our burdens okay that's the focus this week just as just as Boaz took Ruth's uh, survival into his own hands so Boaz or so Jesus does for us now, we can kind of spiritualize that and talk about just salvation, right? He takes our spiritual burden upon us and he saves us and one day we'll be in heaven and one day, you know, there'll be eternity with God. We can super spiritualize that. But before we get there, we, we need to get to the immediacy of what Jesus does when he carries our burden. Because he carries everything. He carries who we are. He carries our past our present, our future. He carries our sins. He carries how we've been sinned against. He carries our trauma. He carries our uh, marginalization. He carries when we have been put to the side. All of that, he takes on himself. 
Okay? It's not just a salvation thing. This is immediate, here and now. He takes our debt, just like Boaz received Ruth's and Naomi's debts. He received Ruth's ethnicity. Remember, she's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's an enemy of Israel. She's poor. She, he, he takes her debt. He takes her, um, her trauma, her social separation, her emotional, mental, and physical trauma. Because remember, she has left her family, her home, her gods, and she has taken on everything new that is Naomi's. All right? So there's that. When she gets there and she starts gleaning grain, remember last week, she is fully expecting to be victimized. She is expecting assault as a realistic option for her. Even if it didn't happen, walking into that situation and expecting it to happen is trauma. Okay? So Boaz takes all of that. He takes her under her, her wing, his wing. And Naomi blesses God for this. She blesses Yahweh who has taken Ruth and her under his wings. Yahweh acting through Boaz. When Ruth says, I'm ready for proposal, I'm ready for you to be a bigger part of our lives, she says, will you spread your wings over me? This is, this is protection. This is care. This is a full reception of, of uh, a relational reception. So Boaz receives all of that in the same way that Christ receives all of that for us. Um, now, when we apply that to salvation, we say Christ covers us. He saves us. We may be tempted into the belief where we kind of put ourselves in Ruth's shoes and we say, I stepped before Christ I made myself available for his salvation. I said, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus came into my life. And that's not the whole story. We may be tempted into this belief that like, we asked Jesus to come into our lives. He saved us and we were good. But that's not the whole story. It's not the whole story that Ruth sought Boaz because she didn't. Remember, Ruth wasn't seeking Boaz. When she went out to the fields, the literal words are, by chance, she chanced upon. In other words, by the most extreme measure of luck, she wound up here in Boaz's field where she would be cared for. Now, we know it's not luck, right? The whole point of the story is that God's hand is moving the pieces, right? But it was on purpose. There is nothing um, scripturally to suggest that we sought Christ, that we came to him and found him. Just the opposite. He seeks us out. In other words, you may have gone to the threshing floor. You may have, you may have made yourself available to him, but it was his kindness that brought you there. He lets us know that he cares. He lets us know he can be trusted so that we can say, you have the capability of taking everything that is mine. It's yours. But we don't get the glory for that. He gets the glory for that. This salvation is top-down from him to us. But not just top-down like a lord and master. It's fully relational. The same way we see with Boaz and Ruth. It's not, uh, it, he is not her master. He brings her in as a friend, as a companion. He calls her daughter. It's a, it's a, 
It's a relationship of closeness, and he takes care of her. Remember, it's not just the fact that he was giving her relief or provision. He gave her a relationship as well. He didn't just give her water. It was water gathered by his servants. He didn't make her go get water for them. They got water for her. He didn't just give her food. He served her food from his own hand. He invited her to eat with them. There's a relational component there. It's not just, let me give you what you need, and I'll stay up here, you stay down there. There's a relational component, and it's the same way with Christ in us. We say, well, you know, Jesus came and saved us, and he is our Lord and Master, and all of that is true. But it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper. Um, this this nature of, of salvation, he spells it out really well in John 15 in his own words, words of Christ, Jesus says this, John 15, 15 through 16 says, No longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Eyes, in your eyes. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is immensely freeing. Because we tend to get in these spots. If we even think about it, if we take 10 seconds to think about this relationship, it does not take us long to arrive at the place where we realize, I don't belong here. I don't belong in this relationship. I don't deserve this kindness and this gratitude. This was not fair of me to the rest of the body of Christ to bring my issues, my problems into this space. It was not fair of me to load Jesus with that. We can get into that space very easily if we take a few seconds to think about it. And Jesus right away silences all of that nonsense. And he says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I knew about this. I brought you in. You didn't fool anybody. You didn't deceive anybody. You do belong here. I took you in. You were my friend. Furthermore, ask me anything. Ask me anything. No request is off limits. Be bold in your ask. He says, anything you ask the Father in my name, it will be given to you. Ask me anything. Make it big. Make it bold. See, I was not nervous when I asked Audrey uh, to marry me. I wasn't nervous. Um, Partly because we had been dating for almost three years at that point. It was kind of like a natural progression. But mostly because I was 22 years old and really dumb. I, I did not fathom the depth of the relationship that I was asking her to be in. I did not fathom the extent of mutuality. I did not fathom the responsibility. I just said, we're about at this point. We're almost graduated. We should get married. Jesus says something else. We can kind of get in that point when we pray and just say, I'm entitled to this. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. God owes me this. I'm just going to ask because 
I deserve it without really putting any thought into it. Um, but I like, I like the attitude of Abraham when he goes before God. He's not even asking for himself. He's asking, he's asking for the, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's asking mercy of God. And, and here are, here are these, the, the words that, that he used. Abraham answered God and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. He knows that anything he is asking God to do is a big ask. It's big because of his relationship with God. God being mighty, us being lowly. Anything we ask God is a big ask. We have to realize that. That even the slight, the next breath is a big ask of God. And what God says is, ask me anyway. I want you to ask. I want to give it to you. It doesn't matter. However small you think it is, it is a big deal to ask something from God. And he says, ask it. Go on. Give it to me. I want to give it to you. I want to give you what you need. I want to give you more than you need. I want to show you kindness and friendship and all of that stuff. In the words of Martin Luther, he says, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. Ask the big ask. Your anxieties, your burdens, they're his. They need to be his. But then give it up. Let it be. Know that he will take care of you. Jesus tells a couple of stories uh, about the, this relationship with prayer. First, he, he talks about a, a widow and an unjust judge. So this judge who doesn't want to give a widow what, what she's asking for, she's coming to his presence uh, day after day after day, asking the same thing over and over and over again. And finally, this, this jerk judge just says, whatever, I'm done. Give her what she wants so she'll go away. Okay, And then he talks about um, uh, two neighbors. One of them gets friends in town in the middle of the night. This guy goes to his next-door neighbor, starts waking everybody up, and he says, I need some bread. Would you please give me some bread? And he says this neighbor will give him what he asks, but not because they're friends, but because of his boldness and persistence and his audacity to ask in the middle of the night. He says, here, you go. Just let... Stop waking everybody up. Let me go to bed. Now, these are not very flattering pictures of God, an unjust judge or a jerk neighbor or whatever. His point is, if these people can get what they need, justice or supplies in, in these earthly terms from jerk people, how much more will you get from your father who is eager to give to you? who is perfectly just, who knows your worries and your problems and, and anticipates what you need. If, if, if people can get justice and provision in this life, how much more are you going to get that from God? Even inconvenienced people will come through for you. Much more so will be the case with God. There's a reason that Jesus calls himself Israel's bridegroom. Think about what Naomi wanted for Ruth and what Ruth was asking of Boaz. It wasn't compatibility. It wasn't a sugar daddy. It was rest. It was solace and security and assurance and peace. 
Think of what it would take to leave everything that you know and everything that you have to go with someone who has nothing with no hope of getting anything to a place where you know nobody. For that person, you make an extreme life decision. Now think of where your Think of where your reality is. Think of where your awareness is at all times. I mean, you were just heightened. You were constantly on guard. What do we need and how do I get it? Okay, you were on constant alert. But in this marriage relationship, you have rest and security and a hope for your future. So we can actually, maybe hopefully, put to rest a terribly interpreted passage regarding this. And I... I, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry if this was like your passage and this is your favorite passage, but we've got to talk about Jeremiah 29, okay? Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to put this in full context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans, to, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You think, well, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to put that on a coffee mug, all right? Let's keep going. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to you, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The relationship that is constantly described in the prophets is one of an unfaithful marriage in drastic need of divorce, where God has only been on the receiving end of injustice and impropriety. And he's saying, ask whatever you want. What I have for you is a future. Not just for us individually. I'm going to give you a car. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you this and a house and whatever else. Not like that. Because I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you rest and security. Christ bears the burdens of the world. So he's called our bridegroom. He is our kindness and our rest. He is our future. So if there is one thing I want you to take with you from this message, it is this. When we bear our neighbor's burdens, we reveal the glory and story of Jesus. Remember, Jesus turns our the end into his glorious unfolding story. Well, how does that unfold? When we bear our neighbor's burdens, we reveal the glory and the story of Jesus. So think to yourself, what are the needs of your church family? We think about our needs all the time, right? I'm not asking you to think about your needs. I'm asking you, what are the needs of the people around you? Do you even know? What are the needs of your biological family? What are the needs in your workplace relationships? What are the needs in your community? Do we even know? Are we making ourselves available to people to receive their needs? See, it's one thing to make yourself available to someone else, to take on their needs. It's a whole other thing to make yourself available with kindness, to kindly receive their needs. It's a whole other thing on top of that to actively seek the needs of others. 
And that is what Christ has done. There are all kinds of reasons why people might not let you know what they need. Okay? I get, I have a feeling, I get just about the thinnest top layer of what's burdening you guys that you, that you share with me. And I'm honored that you share that with me. But I know that's not it. I know that each and every person in here is an iceberg and everything under the surface is just immense. I know y'all have stuff. Now, if you'll look at each other with that, there are all kinds of reasons why those things might not come up. For one, we might not even know what we need. Right? We're just trying to get through the day. We might be ashamed of what we need. We might be confused by what we need. We might just be an introvert and not want to talk to anybody. Right? There are all kinds of reasons why those needs might not come out. But building that, that trust to share needs or, um, or benevolence to meet someone's need, um, sharing of needs, all of that follows kindness. We build trust, right? We, we, we act benevolently toward people. That increases how we trust them with our needs. So, and if you say like, well, I, I don't, I, I don't have time. I don't have the energy to invest in other people. Again, I'm just trying to get through my day, right? I don't think I could take anyone else's needs even if they were willing to share with me. I'll echo you last week. God made margins for the marginalized. For you and me. That's what we do for each other. This is how we reflect Christ. This is what Christ did for you. You are his joy. He did not feel obligated to invite you into a relationship. He did not feel obligated to ask for your prayers. He didn't have to do any of that. He certainly didn't have to die on the cross or rise from the dead or forgive any of our sins. He didn't have to come down from heaven at all. It was not under obligation. You are his joy. You are his utter and complete joy. He longs to give you rest and security and hope and assurance. We make room for our neighbor to bear their burden just as he has done for us. Your burden is his to bear. Our burdens are ours to bear and his to bear. This is the relationship of being in Christ. We bear each other's burdens so he can bear our burdens. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of everything good. You are the God who commands Sabbath because you know us too well. We want to work. We want to go. We want to move. We want to take care of ourselves. And you say, just sit. Breathe deep. Take a second. Not just for yourself, but for me. Think on me. Long for me. Ask me. Today, Lord, is that day. We rest now in your presence because you bear our burdens. You're not only capable, but you're willing. And you are our hope. We thank you for making yourself known to us through Jesus Christ who bears our burden of sin and shame and guilt and 
all of the things that we carry with us, our traumas, our backgrounds, our family histories, everything he knows and he still chooses us. We thank you for him. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we ask that you would so raise up your spirit in us that we can flourish as a community that bears each other's burdens. That your power and your willingness and your heart will be revealed in us for each other. Strangely, Lord, as we bear each other's burdens, it somehow increases our willingness to bear a stranger's burdens. The more time we make, the more of a desire we have to make more time. Lord, increase our margins. Help us throw away what we don't need monetarily, time-wise, energy-wise. Help us put those things to death so that we can honestly and truly give life and attention to what is life-giving. And that is service. In your name, for our neighbor, that is great from you to us. And to us, from us to us. Uh, let's go ahead and